When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My number one album, big shocker to me, also folklore. Whoa. Are you ready to dive into all things Taylor Swift? Good for a Weekend is the ultimate podcast for any Swifty. With new episodes dropping bi-monthly, as well as bonus episodes to give you real-time reactions to the latest rumors and news, it's your one-stop shop for all things T-Swift. We also love connecting with our fellow Weekenders, so be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and or Discord to share all your Taylor thoughts. Good for a Weekend is available wherever you get your podcasts. I know. Oh, just is that like it's a perfect album hello it's the spark parade a podcast featuring conversations with amazing people about the art and culture that has shaped their lives i'm adam Ons. so glad you could join me this week oh this week have i got a treat lined up for you yes Yes, I have. You get to listen to my positively delightful chat with actor Pandora Colin. Recently, you might have seen Pandora in a little show called Chernobyl. Or maybe not. It wasn't widely publicized. Just kidding. It's the highest rated TV show on IMDb ever. Quite an accomplishment. And Pandora is brilliant in it, but she's brilliant in everything. Seriously, she is. Anyway, More gushing and digression later, I promise. Pandora and I talked about her love for three albums, Parallel Lines by Blondie, Daydream Nation by Sonic Youth, and Check Your Head by the Beastie Boys. It's a really great chat. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and most importantly, you'll learn something. Can you ask for anything more? No, no you cannot. Now, there's one little element of our conversation that I wanted to talk about in a little greater detail because it's a subject that I am slightly obsessed with. This is not a spoiler for the interview because it's this peripheral thing that Pandora mentioned, but I'm obsessed, so I wanted to talk to you about it more. Should I just keep talking around the thing or should I tell you what it is? It's probably more interesting if I get to it, right? So, Pandora mentions the Blondie song one way or another and how shocking its lyrics are when you listen to them closely. On the surface, it's this peppy little pop tune, but it's actually about... A stalker. And it's based on a true story. One of Debbie Harry's exes stalked her after they broke up, and she wrote that song about the experience. She intentionally made it a sunny-sounding song to remove some of the horror from it, but those lyrics are fucking terrifying when you understand their history. The stark contrast between serious or disturbing or sad subject matter and light, breezy melodies happens quite a lot in pop music. Think of the entire back catalog of The Police. Songs like So Lonely, Can't Stand Losing You, and Don't Stand So Close to Me deal with depression, suicidal ideation, and teachers lusting after their underage students, but on the surface, All of those songs are radio-friendly pop tunes. When it comes to that type of contrast, I'm more drawn to songs who have sweet melodies that are masking this lyrical yearning. Steve Dunn, who you'll remember from episode two of this podcast, used to say that his favorite pop songs are full of desperation, and I love it when that desperation is masked beneath a cloak of pop joyousness. Do you want an example? Of course you do! My favorite example of this is How Will I Know? 
by the late, great Whitney Houston. Melodically, it is full of joy. It's this summery pop gem that makes everyone want to jump onto the dance floor. But lyrically, but lyrically, it's about poor Whitney driving herself insane, trying to figure out if the boy she likes feels the same way. I love that juxtaposition. It's the border between joy and anxiety, and sometimes those feelings can happen at the same time in real life. That's why I'm not a fan of the Sam Smith cover of How Will I Know. It takes that swirling mix of emotions and turns it into a somber ballad. That just feels so obvious to me. And Whitney's version is anything but. I love music that surprises me, and that's what makes How Will I Know so special. Something that appears on its surface to be bubblegum pop, but in actuality is about the psychological torture of potentially unrequited love? Sign me up! Okay? Alright. Glad I got that out of my system. Ready for my wonderful little chat with Pandora? Here it comes. Without further ado, here's Pandora Colin talking to me about her love for Parallel Lines, Daydream Nation, and Check Your Head. Shall we crack on with uh, Pandora's musical journey <laughs> through New York? Oh, yeah, exactly. Maybe a good place to start is Baby's first album. Yes. So, Parallel Lines. Yeah, one was six. Oh my god. <laughs> How cute. <laughs> um, do you remember like hearing it on the radio and wanting yeah. to have it before you bought it? Exactly. Or, mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Hearing it on the radio and seeing her on top of the pops, mm-hmm. um, which was a sort of big music. The only, oh, that and the great old grey whistle test were the only music TV shows Yes, so so Top of the Pops was a big TV show, uh, music TV show. I think I want to say it was on Thursday nights, and it was it would have whatever you know five, or maybe more, maybe like about eight of the kind of bands in the charts in the hit parade, and they would come and play in the studio at the BBC, and it was really fun to and the, fun to watch. So I would have seen them on that, I think, and she, you know, she was just completely mesmerising. And then I saved up my money I guess I had pocket money or you know whatever Christmas money whatever and at the end of my road there was a WH Smith which I don't think even exists for much anymore except in airports and stuff but it was a kind of a you know sort of news agents but you and you could buy music there as well in one corner of it they did albums and cassettes and um yeah and I remember buying parallel lines and um just basically just playing it and playing it and playing it and I'm an only child so just you know being in my bedroom for hours and hours and hours singing singing and being and dancing around my bedroom and being Debbie Harry just you know forever yeah and then I and then my first seven inch was call me which mm-hmm. was also not yeah around not long after that yeah, I think yeah was parallel lines an album that was like just yours or did your parents listen to it as well no not at all so my parents are quite a bit older than most people's parents they had me I was like my dad's second family um and so um and my mom for those days was in her late 30s when she had me which of course was very elderly um (laughs) and so they were listening to like jazz and classical music and stuff Mm. um so this was just me and I didn't know I mean, I guess it was like in the charts that Heart of Glass and stuff was a disco hit, you know. Mm-hmm. So, which was a kind of whole weird thing where 
Blondie got kind of criticised by the other CBGB bands, the other punk bands was like, you've, you know, you traitor, you've gone over into pop and disco. But so I guess, you know, probably, you know, m- m- me and my little friends at birthday parties were like dancing to it and, um, you know, having disco competitions. And <laughs> um, so, you know, definitely that with Heart of Glass and Sunday Girl, they're like, sort of pure pop really mm-hmm. but then I remember you know but then I was strange child that I was you know then buying the album you know there are some really weird songs on there mm-hmm. yeah like the the big international smash singles like um, Heart of Glass are mm-hmm. kind of anomalies that it's not necessarily representative representative of even the other pop songs that they did but, yeah uh, I mean, that was just sort of fully disco, but then like things like one way or another mm. sort of blows my mind when you, as an adult listening to the words of it, you're just like, oh my God, that's totally about a stalker. And yeah. then, you know, finding out that it was about a stalker, it was someone who was stalking Debbie Harry and, um, and things like, I don't know, they were, what were the other, I mean, they were really, yeah, so sort of spooky, go away, just go away. I remember that's just like really, that sounded so bratty. And really, you know, as a kid listening to that, that, you know, you just it was rude to say to anybody, just go away. And it just felt quite exciting and transgressive that there was a whole song with a woman sort of just going, I don't want to see you anymore. Put up and shut up. You, uh, what is it? You smell? Uh, you, oh, no, it's not smell. It's spell. <laughs> it's, you spell, you read. D-O-O-R. Yeah, it's just like it was so bratty. And that was just, you know, obviously for a precocious six-year-old little girl that was like yes yeah and i yeah i think i just and she just looked amazing sort of on the on the cover you know she looks like she's leading an army she's standing in front of all these blokes who look who all dress the same Mm -hmm. she's there with her hands on her hips and it's like she's a sort of sort of amazing warrior goddess Mm, yeah and i always found that that like she's really conventionally beautiful like she Mm -hmm. looks like a movie star or a model but she has this like she's so strong and powerful and there's this like toughness that just comes through in every picture that's taken of her um, Mm. that you know it was like she I think knows how beautiful she is but Mm -hmm. it's that uh, she still kind of fights against that that it's like um, it really is about making music and having you know showing her talent um Mm. in addition to just having this like you know surface level conventional beauty Mm, definitely and there's just that you know there's nothing passive about her Mm. or submissive um even there's a great book of photos of of, that chris stein took of her that came out a few years ago and you know even when if she's in a submissive pose as it were she just never looks submissive she never she just she always looks sort of front foot and sort of challenging, mm-hmm. um, which you know. Then when you hear her being interviewed and stuff, I think she is pretty. She's pretty challenging, you know, and combative in a great way, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just um, very in control and doesn't take anybody's shit. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so and, and and so it yeah it would have you know as a result of that and because because of being half American and spending a lot going to New York a lot because that's where my grandparents lived I sort of that's how I sort of then became much more into I mean although you know Blondie 
sort of made it big over in the UK before they made it sort of big in the States, oddly. But mm-hmm. that yeah. that was kind of a sort of that was something that I made a connection with so that when I would go to New York or as I got older, it was something that I sort of pursued and sought out, you know, the the roots of where that had come from. And uh, yeah, just the sort of there's something about it that just makes me f- feel like it, I'm in New York. It sounds really mm-hmm. weird. Well, like in a in a in a New York that was that definitely I'd, probably doesn't exist anymore um, at all. But yeah. um, you know that that and it just it seems so um, thrilling and exciting. And I suppose also growing up in I mean I was never into the punk movement in England that was happening at the same time that I was discovering Blondie. But I feel like that that was so it felt really masculine over here. I mean, it's pretty masculine over there as well, but because she was my first taste of it, I kind of wasn't aware of that immediately. Whereas over here, you know, the slits and stuff, the UK punk, female punks, they weren't getting as much exposure as she got. And so that sort of, it was a kind of funny way into sort of being obsessed with punk music, particularly American and new wave, sort of through her. And so sort of completely sort of missing out on what was happening in the country where I lived. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's, uh, what just going back to what you were saying about uh, feeling like you know there's this deep connection to Blondie and New York. Mm. Um, you know, I guess this is pretty obvious, but there are some bands where it's like they're a band who's maybe started in a city, they're from a city, but they don't really have any connection to it, and it's just like they are a band and they travel around and nobody really cares where they're from. And then there are bands where it's like they have such a deep connection to the city where they started. And I think Blondie is one of those bands that it's like they, their connection to New York is so strong that in everybody's mind, you know, you watch Blondie videos and you kind of assume that they're going to be set in New York and that Mm. everything they do is in New York. And uh, I was reading about the, creation of parallel lines and the producer was saying that he was a an la guy and they didn't really trust him because he wasn't (laughs) from new york um yeah yeah it's exactly that and sort of that whole scene of every you know that all those really brutal rough joints that they were all living in sort of Mm -hmm. around the bowery Mm -hmm. that whole sort of you know and uh God knows, I can't explain why I found that all really thrilling and exciting. Probably because yeah. I was a really privileged, posh little girl in London. Mm. <laughs> and it sounded like really exotic. But just that whole thing. So there being a sort of real scene and a real, you know, and it sort of being really involved with artists as well, not just musicians and them all, you know. I mean, she, she sort of, you know, she came at the end of the factory days. You know, there was, you know, there was some Warhol crossover there for her, certainly. Mm-hmm. And so that it just felt like a sort of, yeah, sort of rough, rough around the edges glamour that sort of seemed really exciting. And that then, yeah, it sort of it was such a massive influence on so many bands that came up immediately after. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. which yeah which would be i mean so so i would say the contemporaries around the time of the blondie uh, of blondie i i wasn't so i sort of didn't get into bands like i didn't get into iggy and the stooges or uh the ramones or um television or any of those bands until much much later and mm-hmm. you know like god i mean you know 15 years later mm-hmm. um 
But what I got into immediately, you know, pretty soon after the sort of, you know, early in my teens was the sort of the people who came after after Blondie out of that same scene, the sort of the sort of next generation. So Sonic Youth and they and they and Sonic Youth are absolutely hands down my favourite band of all time. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, they are completely the sort of offspring of that sort of seventies punk yeah. uh, movement, um, the sort of no wave set of offspring and um and it's all that and it's all sort of you know again i mean in sonic youth uh, kim gordon was a west coast girl but you know there there is that sort of, again it all sort of happened in those sort of same sort of 10 blocks if maybe less you know mm-hmm. around the around there and that and in this exactly the same way and everyone just all sort of living in horrible places with no furniture and just living and sleeping next to their guitars and making noise and going around to each other's houses and you know crashing out and playing strange distorted music and uh yeah it's just it's so and for me it's so so completely echoes the the, the its surroundings like especially when i used to go there and i would walk around that area the, it was just completely reflected in that music mm-hmm. yeah Mm-hmm. And just a, a very different uh, Manhattan <laughs> where people yeah. can still afford to uh, have apartments, even if they were decrepit, falling yeah. apart. But, you know, living on the island, making music, being in kind of creative communities where mm. people didn't necessarily need to have any money to be able to make their start. It is not that way anymore. No, no, uh, the East Village is, a, is not that. There's a great book called Sir Marks is Dead. Do you know it? Have you? Oh, I really recommend it. Mm. Um, it's all about the history of St. Mark's Place, for literally from when Dutch people turn up and start chasing the people who originally lived there away. Mm. And mm. it starts right, right then, sort of with the Dutch and then the English. And it just can't go through the whole of history. Um, and obviously the bit I found the most fun was the sort of ni- early 90s, because that's when I was living there and basically stalking the beastie boys and uh, and um and it was yeah and that so and it just it it articulates exactly beautifully what i've sort of experienced when i was living there and but it's a great book all about the east village and that whole scene when it gets to the music scene and the punk scene and this and the gay scene and it's really interesting book and it's written really well i I recommend really Uh, good i will check that out have you read meet me in the bathroom no what's that that's like the next stage it's kind of late 90s rock scene in in uh new york and that focuses more on like the aas and Mm. um the strokes and and people like Mm -hmm. that but kind of talking about the last time when people who didn't have any money could live in manhattan make music and get their start um and that's really interesting too yeah and before and they all played at cbgb's as well before it finally shut its doors (laughs) before it became a john barbados store Uh... (laughs) yeah um well i remember like going when i would go i think i once when i was 23 21 yeah, when I was 21, going over there because my grandmother died, so we had to go and sort out all her stuff. And um, going over to, um, is it B? Is B the other side of Tompkins Park? Uh, yeah. What? Yeah, so B, going to B to this tiny, tiny, tiny shop where it was the only shop where you could buy Carhartt, and I would go and get my, like, skater gear in girl sizes there so whatever that would be so i was so that would be like 90 
two or something mm-hmm. and and um and I would go over there and um and people you know people like take a cab, don't walk, it's really heavy, you're mad, what are you doing going over to that side? Don't go to alphabet city and I'd go over get an apart get a cab and head down there and then sort of I'd keep and it's called in its metropolis but it used to be the space where you could just get little skater gear and um yeah it was really fun and half the point of going to this place and getting my Carhartt trousers was so that I could then sneakily hang out in Tompkins Square Park (laughs) and you know and literally and literally stalk the Beastie Boys who I was like always see I just hang around the East Village until I saw them skateboarding um, <laughs> and um, um, yeah it was so just that whole area is so so fun and you know there's someone obsessed with all that kind of music and that part of a of a city um it was sort of irresistible and then it sort of increasingly became easier to walk around there and then yeah it was just a different story by the um, end of the 90s so when were you living there that was that was uh, I want to say 95 hmm I think 95 or 96 I was living there. Yeah, when I was about 24. Mm. So my maths is really bad. Um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, so when I was about 24, I, I lived there for, on and off for about a year and a bit. Yeah, which is great. And that was like, again, the only the first time that I'd ever gone to a gig on my own. I'd just go to gig. You know, there was one little band called Vita Pop. I don't know who they were. They were like a funny American little tiny indie punk band. And I would just kind of, they'd play around New York. Brownies, does that still exist? There was a venue called Brownies in the East Village. Yeah, and just, I'd go to gigs on my own because New York is such a great city to be on your own, I feel like. Mm. Mm-hmm. I never, I've always felt, I've never felt self-conscious about having a drink on my own or a meal on my own or going to a gallery on my own or anything in New York in a mm-hmm. way that you sort of feel a bit sort of strange and lonely and doing it in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, going to gigs on my own in New York was so fun. I do have friends um, <laughs> to, to do things with, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah I, I sort of, it's really liberating. Um, but before you came here, before you were living here at that time, yes. uh, you were you already Sonic Youth and Beastie Boys fan? Oh, totally. So yeah, so I mm. guess I was about twenty three or twenty four when I came w- went over there. But um, I got into you know Beastie Boys. I got into on License to Ill, probably mm. for a very similar. Well, for two main reasons. One, again, I thought it was like you know I was too young to be disturbed by the misogyny that was. Mm. Uh, the problem on that uh, that stage in their life I, I didn't I just thought it was funny um you know so I loved that they were bratty and outrageous and dangerous and that everyone was getting really uptight about them and obviously uh, as any sane person would be I was very deeply in love with Adro uh, <laughs> and with a passion which remains to this day uh, <laughs> and um um so yeah so that summer the summer that License to Ill came out which was end of 86 Okay, November fifteenth, nineteen eighty-six. Very good. Um, yes, I I uh, I went to America that summer, and like you know, the, there was all the stuff that they were, you know, they were they sang about Budweiser. So I bought an enormous Budweiser T-shirt, which I sleep in still. It's completely, <laughs> it's totally sort of barely there. And I bought for their big. T- I don't know. It drives me crazy. I don't know what happened to it, but you know, because we were wearing massive, oversized T-shirts and stuff. I bought a massive Run DMC uh, Beastie Boys tour T-shirt, even though I was too young to go to the gigs. I bought the T-shirt 
Where that is, I don't know. It makes me crazy. I can't find it. And I, you know, I bought, I don't know, again, things I don't know how I managed to do it, but I got a can of Budweiser, which I, I have no idea how I did it. And I, of course, probably could buy Budweiser in the UK, but Mm. I bought a can of Bud, which is, I still, I don't know how I did it because I was 14 and yeah, I, you know, I did, and I looked 10. Anyway, I got (laughs) one and I, and I didn't drink the contents. I poured that away, but I got a can opener and made it into like a pot so I took the whole top of it off and had that and took that to you know, I was at boarding school and took it back to boarding school with me and kept all my pens and stuff in this bud can because I was yeah and um, you know my one of my best friends like I've still got like a fucking Merc thing off a car that my friend got me and gave me because he knew I was really into you know they used to like pull out all the VW and Merc yeah yeah cars and i've still got one off of like a merc that someone like some 15 year old kid friend of mine was like so look what i got for you <laughs> so i was re- i was into i was into all that and mm. uh, yeah so i was so that was when i was 14 that was when that love affair began and then yeah i would say of all their albums check your head is my number one and yeah i just sort of spent a whole summer when that came out driving around with my friend because she had a car Actually, she had access to her stepmother's car. And we just drove around listening to Check Your Head really, really loudly. What did we do then? We didn't do anything. We didn't have anything to do. So that's what we did. Drove around listening to Check Your Head. And um, whenever I had a party into my late 20s, um, before anyone arrived, I would just like put on Check Your Head to get myself and my flat in the party mood. (laughs) Yeah. And that's when they said, and that's the first album, because they were punks as well. So they were little punk punk boys. And Mm. they... I think they played like they were like in something mad like 1982 they were playing little punk gigs quite low down the list at CBGB's and um, and then obviously they got into hip hop and then check your heads when they start playing their instruments again as well as sort of having all the samples and beats and I just love that about it so there's just like so, so much sort of that sort of heavy instrumentation that was just and again yeah before so that's still when they're sort of but I think that check your head is when they're in LA then I think they've moved to LA by then I think yeah so that so that is quite a different kind of town but yeah I sort of yeah fully associate them with with New York and they move back to New York after check your head and oh maybe after real communication and um yeah but yes and I was just that exactly when they were when they basically the year they got back to New York after their stint in LA was the year was when I was living in New York and when I say I stalked them I didn't re- I'm not a freak stalker I uh, I did hang out in the East Village quite a lot hoping to see them skateboarding with some <laughs> success but also my friends were like joking that they were the Beastie Boys were stalking me because I think maybe I lived near one of them because I kept seeing them in my local coffee shop. And then I'd like go up down and do something and then they'd all be up there shooting a video. And so I was like, this is meant to be. Yeah, it's like, it's not my fault. I'm not stalking them. I just like these places. And if they happen yeah. to be here, who am I to t- turn them away? Exactly, exactly. <sighs> so, yeah. So, and I, and I think, and then, so when I was 23 so then I think I first saw Sonic Youth when I was about 19 and they were and I was really sort of amazed by them but I didn't quite get them so much and then when I was 23 and I went over to I was in my first band and I went over to New York and and with this I think I'm yeah I mentioned to you that's like so our first ever gig first gig I ever played was CBGB's and um, (laughs) 
and I'd got into Daydream Nation. I'd like had a cassette recording of it that I listened to on the flight over there in the smoking rows on the aeroplane, of course, mm-hmm. in those days, at the back of the plane, smoking cigarettes. <laughs> it's so mad to think that that was acceptable. And um, and I just listened to Daydream Nation and sort of it was an epiphany and I was just, it's my perfect white noise it's just it makes the hairs stand on end all over my body it's just every time I play it and now I torment my children and take them through it in a really like (laughs) drunk person but not drunk going no wait for it and then the drum comes in wait 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 there it's amazing like this and so (laughs) they're totally sort of tortured by me um and um, yeah, that and so then listening to that album and then arriving in New York, really boiling hot. It was like August or something to do that gig. So hot and so exciting. And and I bought, in fact, I, while I was there, I bought the Root Down, the Beastie Boys Root Down EP, mm-hmm. and we had it as our music at CBGBs before we came on stage, <laughs> basically because no one had any other music on them, and I just bought the CD. But. That there was just, you know, it was a sort of perfect, that weekend was, you know, and just behaving appallingly and staying up all night on the roof of the Gramercy Park Hotel. And it was just yeah. like a perfect synthesis of like all all rock excellence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and in f- yeah, well, I probably shouldn't say this, but yes, there was a guy who hung around us the whole evening who said that he had sometimes played with Blondie and could get us drugs if we wanted them. But I suspect, <laughs> looking back, that he had probably never had anything to do with Blondie at all. <laughs> yeah, but, I, you know, in the moment, I'm sure, when people are saying things like that, it's like, oh my God, that's so cool. Like, I'm, yeah, you know, one degree away from Debbie Harry. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting to me, like, all of those... All three of those albums are at a point in those bands' careers where, like, Parallel Lines um, and Daydream Nation definitely are the albums, I think, that launched Blondie and Sonic Youth, like, into the stratosphere, or at least were, you know, Daydream Nation maybe wasn't as big of a hit when it came out, but it was definitely the thing that got them, you know, signed to a major label and was, like, pushed them into the mainstream. And the same thing with Blondie, that it was like, you know... That was it. Their third album, I think, and third, yes, yeah, and it was yeah. just this like instant, huge international success, and sort of with the Beastie Boys as well. That I mean, che- check your head probably wasn't a huge. Also, the third, so really, because yeah, because right. yeah. it'll, it'll communicate. Because uh, um, Paul's Boutique was sort of this sort of cult favorite, but odd flop at the time. And like I, you know, check your head wasn't the huge success that the albums that followed were. Yeah, ill were communication. That, yeah, because of sab- you know sabotage or no communication, like that's it, just mega. Right. Yeah, but just check your head. Being kind of when they were experimenting more and kind of finding where their sound was going to go. Um, yeah, and kind of fusing the bits of uh, like it, it didn't have as many samples as Paul's Boutique, but it still had some. And then yeah, they're kind of punky roots coming through. There's a lot of like punkier stuff on. Yeah, uh, check your head. So yeah, and all of those, even though the music on all three of those albums is pretty disparate, they all have it's like this family tree of this New York sound all coming from kind of the same geographical area at least yeah um, yeah, yeah and I'm sure you know Blondie are you know probably 
10 years ahead of Sonic Youth and the Beastie Boys in terms of when they were really in the public consciousness. But still, I'm sure there were there's intermingling of oh, um, yeah. all of those scenes. Oh, definitely. And that, like, fun, you know, as a sort of silly nerd, I love the fact that. So, um, oh, I'm going to get her name on Kate. I can't say it properly, but who was originally in the Beastie Boys, like right at the beginning. But she was originally, originally in the Beastie Boys when they were like kids knocking around. She then went and set up a band called Luscious Jackson. Yeah, yeah. And they were on the Grand, so they were on the Grand Royal label that the Beastie Boys set up. And on, mm, I would say the third Luscious Jackson album, there was an EP, and then there's maybe the second album after the EP. Debbie Harry sings a song, this great song called Fantastic Fabulous on this uh, on this Luscious, Luscious Jackson album, which it just to me is just like, oh, it's just, it's really um, satisfying when all those worlds collide. Mm. Um, she called uh, Kate Schellenbach? That's the one, exactly. I'm, I'm, a, I'm that's a um, an assumed pronunciation. Yeah, I, no I, I'm, I accept um, it. Yeah. But yeah, oh God, I love Luscious Jackson. And that, like the In Search of Manny EP, wasn't yes. that one of the, if not the first, one of the first Grand Royal? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think mm. so. And that's around the time. What date have you got there for for Manny? That's I, 92. Yeah, so I got, so that makes sense. So in 93, I got my bass guitar and I taught myself to play bass because I can't read music. And I taught myself by learning all the bass lines on that EP and by learning a lot of L7 songs. And obviously the very first song that I had to learn on bass was Gigantic by the Pixies. Obviously, mm. the great mm-hmm. bass line. <laughs> um, <laughs> and basically that's it. But yeah, and there's a really hard one on Search for Manny, which is a really, really hard bass line to play. And I was really pleased when I finally got it down. Mm. <laughs> but all those, those are like the things that I practiced and practiced and practiced and probably also come as you are, probably. Mm. That's another one I remember playing a lot. But yeah, I met, I think I first saw Luscious Jackson when they were supporting the Breeders, mm. which is great. I think I want to say at Clapham Grand, but I'm not sure if that if my memory is playing tricks on me. But I think that's when I first saw them. And that's just you know I know I sound like a real old old fart now, but kind of that whole thing of like oh that's a new band I must remember that name and then like having to go to a record shop and go try and say do you have anything by a band called you know just mm-hmm. like. That sort of effort you would have to make with just like taking yourself off to record stores and yeah, doing a lot of, you know, hard graft to find yeah. <laughs> to find but, that that's uh, like. I miss that. I like I I know it's much easier now that everybody, you know, the second they hear a song and like Shazam it or Yeah, I love Shazam. Ask, you know, <laughs> ask ask the people next to them who it is. But I really yeah. like I kind of got off on being like a music detective when yes. I was a teenager and I'd be like, oh, it's so cool. Like I can uh, remember any, any bit of music and, um, you know, I'll be able to track it down. No problem. Like yeah. uh, go around to record stores and um, just keep looking until I find it. Yeah. Um, exactly. And now it's like, yeah, anybody can do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're not special. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It was, it was a badge of honor doing all of that. But um, yeah, no, I'm very grateful for Shazam. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the only time when it's really frustrating is when you're in a place where there's like the. It's Can everyone be quiet. Yeah. I'm yeah. trying to <laughs> Exactly. Just like, and also the slight self consciousness of 
if if it's a song that's like, oh, this is a shit song, but I can't remember who it's by, and just like holding your phone up to yeah. the speaker so that you can identify it. It's like, yeah, yeah. Mm. Oh, oh, you like this song? You're shazamming this <laughs> yeah. song. All right. Mm. Oh, Vanga Boys <laughs> fan. Great. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So that sounds like a very exciting time to be in New York. Um, yeah. I think it, like I I started coming to New York a couple years later when I was at uni and my friends were living here and stuff. But um, yeah, a very different city to how it is now. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, I, I talk about this a lot, but like different isn't better. It's just different. And, yeah. you know, the city as yeah. it is now has um, the places where people can live who don't have as much money and want to have like a creative community. They just don't live in Manhattan anymore. Um, well, I think that is a comprehensive, informative, and highly entertaining <laughs> chat. Um, so thank you so much for talking to me. Um, if people want to find out more about you, how would they go about that? Well, I don't know. I don't have a website or anything like that. You've got um, IMDb. I- there's IMDb. Um, there's my yeah. I guess my yeah. My agent Curtis Brown. <laughs> but I don't. If you want, if you want to watch my show reel. Um, but um, no, yeah. I don't. I don't really. I yeah. That frightens me. You could go to. You could if you uh, like music. Uh, might mm-hmm. I recommend you visit the Sound Cat Cloud page of Venetian Blonde, which is the name of a band that I'm in. But we're so useless. We only ever get together about once every two years um, but um, but yeah there are some fun songs on there yes uh, and blonde yeah but yeah that's it really that's not i maybe i should i don't want to make a website about myself no i think that that is more than enough in information and you know you can let your work speak for itself right exactly <laughs> um all right well thank you again it was great talking to you thank you thanks been fun yes bye goodbye Okay, I think we can all agree that Pandora is the best, right? It was so lovely chatting with her. Thanks again, Pandora. Please check out her work. She is a fucking phenomenal actor. Really, really, like breathtaking. Seriously. Right. A recommendation or two? Why the hell not? Firstly, while we're on the subject of Pandora... Chernobyl is just fucking excellent. I know everyone in the universe has probably seen it by now, but it really is an absolute masterpiece. It's so tense and so horrifying, but so, so, so well done. The acting is outstanding. Jared Harris, Emily Watson, Stellan Skarsgård, and of course, Pandora Colin are all absolutely brilliant. Well done, everybody involved in making Chernobyl. And if you want a music recommendation this week, check out Kia Victoria. Oh my god, can she sing. She did a gig in Brooklyn on Monday that I had to miss and I was gutted about it, but lots of people have posted videos of it on social media and she was just insanely good. So listen to her music. Now, the question on everyone's mind is, will I ever recommend music that's not a female R&B or soul singer? The answer? Probably. Hopefully. Only time will tell. Satisfied with that answer? I'm sure you are. So let's wrap this up, kids. As always, please follow me on the socials 
at Spark Parade. Please rate and review the show wherever you stream or download it. And please tell everyone you know to do the same and tell strangers too. Just make sure everyone you encounter rates, reviews, and subscribes and we'll all be set. I think that's a fair expectation. All right, dudes. Have a lovely week. Until next time. Bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.